Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen. Lauren is traveling this week, but I am joined today by two amazing and very problematic women, Gloria Taylor and Lindsay. Well, I was going to say Fifield, but Lindsay, is that still your last name? It is professionally. I'm it not, is professionally. Yeah, okay. just for privacy, I'm keeping my married name Got it. secret from the public. Isn't oh, it so sneaky? It's so <laughs> sneaky. <laughs> Well, thank you both so much for being here. Super excited for this conversation. You've both been on the show before, but it's a treat to have you back, especially here together. Yeah, this is we so exciting. I think I'm usually like a kind of a guest, and it feels good to actually be kind of like co-hosty. Yes. Like I'm very part of official. it now. You yes. are part of it. <laughs> well, Lindsay, you were actually almost late to record this morning uh, because you ran into a uh, certain member of the Biden administration. I did. This is not the first time that this has happened. And I know in D.C. culture, it's very normal to blame things on a motorcade. It's kind of the classic, like, oh, (laughs) sorry, I was late this morning. There was a motorcade. And you can kind of, like, blame the White House for a lot of different problems. It's been all years long. Like, it's a a very cliche D.C.S. Washingtonian excuse. But... Um, I take bar. And And what is bar for those that don't know? Kind of like Pilates, kind of like ballet. It's just a fun exercise class. It's a great, I mean, I've been doing it for years. I love it. And apparently the first lady loves it too because (laughs) she has been taking bar three for years in Georgetown. But now um, because of the mask mandate not being in place in Virginia, um, I assume that's why because it's nice to not have to wear a mask on your face when you're taking class. Um, So she's been taking class where I take class. And it's normally not that bad if I don't have like a busy morning, like if I'm coming to record this podcast or something. But this morning it was really annoying because I had to leave class early to make sure that I wasn't going to get jammed up because Secret Service just kind of has to get everybody through and do all the stuff. And so I was really nervous that I wasn't going to make it here on time. But I made it with coffee and everything. So no worries. But it is really just one of those funny DC things. That's so bizarre, like to be working out and look over and be like, oh, the first lady's in my workout class. It's, it's pretty surreal because it's I mean this is probably the fifth or sixth time that she's been in class with me and it is really interesting and do people talk to her no, um, they're very polite. One day she asked me, like she ex- she asked if she could get in front of me to wash her hands while I was like doing my makeup in the mirror in the locker room, Aww. and I was like, "Of course!" and like, "Have a good day!" and like, everybody was just they're just basic courtesies. But I think everyone, and I think this is something that I wish had been afforded to the Trump administration too. There is a part of DC culture where like you want the first family and you want people to be able to like live normal lives, and like you don't want to make it weird for them. Like that would be inappropriate if I was to say, you know something about the economy or something really, you know, political to her, that would feel inappropriate and beneath my dignity. Mm-hmm. And I think it was also underneath everyone's dignity, the way that they treated Melania. Mm-hmm. And I think Ivanka even took an exercise class once and they made it really political and banned her from coming back. And like, that's nastiness. And so I would never want to do that back to the left just because the left does it to us, if that makes sense. Yeah. Treat others how you want yes. to be treated. Exactly. <laughs> So good. All right. Well, we have a great show planned for today. So much good conversation. Lindsay, go ahead and tell us what we have queued up. So up on today's Problematic Women, we're going to explain what you need to know about the Biden administration's COVID-19 vaccine mandate and its potential ramifications. Plus, paid family leave has been quite a big issue for a long time, but it's getting some special attention right now. So we're going to tell you what that's all about. And then in honor of Veterans Day, we're going to take some time to celebrate our heroes and share some stories of female veterans that we admire. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. 
Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. And if you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encourage others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. One week ago, the Biden administration announced the details of their COVID-19 vaccine mandate. You all may remember that two months ago, President Biden announced that he was directing the Labor Department's Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which is also referred to as OSHA for short, to write a mandate requiring all employers with 100 or more employees to get their people vaccinated. Biden was clear and direct in his announcement. This is not about freedom or personal choice. It's about protecting yourself and those around you. So this long-awaited order was released last Thursday. And like we said, it requires companies with 100 or more employees to ensure that all of their employees are vaccinated. But those who don't want to be vaccinated have to be tested weekly and wear a mask. And companies are, are not required to pay for those weekly tests which means that uh, those that choose to opt out of being vaccinated, they are likely going to have to pay out of pocket for those tests. Yeah, the million-dollar question, is this legal? Is this mandate constitutional? I I mean, obviously, (laughs) our research says no, it is not. They can't do this, and obviously there's a lot of lawsuits and judicial things happening right now uh, that, that support that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's been wild to see and encouraging, I think, to see the amount of pushback Right away on this, we've seen 26 states have filed lawsuits, a number of our our partners, folks that we work with here in D.C., the Job Creators Network, the Daily Wire, they filed lawsuits. And we've even seen that the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, they have temporarily blocked this mandate uh, and they've raised concerns over its legality. So already we're seeing red flags go up. Everywhere. Well, and then yesterday with the Biden administration saying that they're going to ignore the court order, I thought that was really something like, can they do that? Literally years ago, we had people saying it was President Trump was going to be tyrannical and, you know, circumvent the rule of law. And here we literally have the Biden administration saying, nope, just kidding. Ignore the courts. Do exactly what we said in the beginning. Yep. So much so much for opposing authoritarianism and fascism. Right, guys? No, that has been my thought with all of this. It's like. I could open a George Orwell novel and read this and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yep. But, you know, you're starting to process. If you actually think about the government is mandating people to put a substance in their body that some people don't feel comfortable with, whether or not you agree with the vaccine, whether or not you are 100 percent on board or, you know, super, super cautious, don't want anyone to get it. We should all be able to agree on the fact that the government cannot be telling people uh, and, and directing people how to manage their own personal health. 
Yeah, absolutely. And there's a woman that's just come under fire um, as being called a hypocrite in the media because she opposes vaccine mandates. And the gotcha headline has been, we found out that this woman was actually vaccinated all along. That's not a gotcha. I, I myself am vaccinated and oppose vaccine mandates. That is not contradictory. That's not hypocritical. It just means that you, you can be for something, but not be for mandating that something. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the problem that a lot of people are having with this. There's tons of people who are exactly in my position where we're vaccinated, but we don't we don't like this direction. And especially as we're getting closer to, to deciding about vaccinations for children mm-hmm. or uh, mandates for vaccines for kids going back to school. Yes, of course, we've had vaccine mandates in the past, but those are for vaccines that have been on the market for 10, 15, sometimes 20 years before they're mandated. It's literally just another uh, example of the left's complete inability to do to deal with any kind of nuance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I've been thinking through sort of one of one of the life mottos that I can't I can't claim that I came up with, but that I stole is, <laughs> uh, you know, I might not agree with what you say, but I will defend by all means yep. your right to say it. And that is so true, I think, with the vaccines of, OK, we have to defend people's right to choose and actually decide for themselves. And from from a legal perspective, the senior uh, senior fellow Doug Badger here at the Heritage Foundation, senior legal research fellow Paul Larkin, they they're very clear on this that OSHA that they don't have the authority to issue these kind of general nationwide vaccine mandates. There's no precedent for this. This is not in the Constitution, and so for OSHA to come out with this broad sweeping mandate. Uh, there's just no uh, strong legal support for that. Yeah. And when you look at the actual provisions of of the mandate that they're trying to force upon people, it's really dystopian. The, the fines, the amounts, expecting employers to have to be the vaccine police for their employees. It's just creating a lot of problems. And it's where government should not be. So a little more background on this. Businesses, they are supposed to be in full compliance with this OSHA vaccine mandate by January 4th. But that that deadline now, people are wondering, like, okay, is that actually going to be met because of all of the lawsuits, because of the Fifth Circuit saying that we actually don't know that, that this is legal, that this is allowed. And the other important thing to know about the vaccine mandate is that it's requiring all federal employees to be vaccinated. And unlike private companies, they don't have the option uh, to to be tested, so federal employees just have to be vaccinated. And uh, if it if it does stand, Gloria, I know that that you have and your team has done some reporting on this. That the influence, specifically on U.S. Customs and Borders Protection, it's it's significant. And we don't think it always. We don't always pause to think about how something like this can affect so many different aspects of society. You would hope that the government would stop and actually think about how how their mandates, how something like this could have uh, really negative effects across the country. But I don't think they did. Gloria, what do we know? Well, it's pretty funny because you the Biden administration started to see, oh, police officers walking out, firefighters walking out. And instead of let's pause, course correct, think about the national security, the um, – the implications for just society as a whole. Nope, full steam ahead. Drop the private company OSHA mandate. But in regards to the federal employee uh, vaccine mandate, let's look specifically at you know, the Border Patrol. We're in the middle of a historic 
border crisis that has been you know, self-inflicted by the Biden administration with no signs of slowing down. Um, and as part of this vaccine mandate, uh, CBP has a system where all personnel are mandated to report their vaccine status. And as of right now, 48 percent of Border Patrol agents have not responded to that reporting mandate. Um, it was a source inside Customs and Border Protection that uh, told Mark Morgan, a visiting fellow here at the Heritage Foundation and former head of CBP, that as of you know October 25th, if all agents who have not responded have not been vaccinated or refuse to be vaccinated, the Biden administration could then lose 11,523 Border Patrol agents. That's half of the force of CBP. Wow. And we know that already our borders are so maxed out with so many people trying to come across, trying to claim asylum to think that our agents could actually be cut in half overnight, really. Mm-hmm. That's frightening. I, 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 man, I feel for those agents that would be left behind. That would be so hard for them to have to deal with the fallout of that. Yeah, they're already stretched to the absolute breaking point. You, you see the stories coming out about the number of people that they've also rescued, a historic number of people that they've rescued in the desert, mm-hmm. and thinking about not having those resources available when they're already at such a at such a perilous point. It's terrifying. Not only terrifying, you start to think about is it. It's almost nefarious from the Biden administration. Do they do they want to lose these agents? If we look at what they've been doing the past nine months, they are perfectly fine with thousands and thousands of people walking across the border. We have no idea who these people are. We have no idea what kind of threats we're facing. It, I wouldn't be shocked if, you know. It does seem intentional. At yep. a certain point, it's like, what would they be doing differently if they were trying to cause this crisis? Because it is, it's so, there's so much malfeasance that it's just egregious. When you see the number, you see the number of people that they're catching, consider the number of people that they're not catching, the gotaways. And that's, that's what's really terrifying because we see them being sent to different parts of the country. And yeah, it's absolutely unacceptable. On Mark Morgan, he recently joined Newsmax to weigh in on this issue to talk about the ramifications. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. We we know that a minimum 25 percent of illegal aliens coming in have active COVID. But instead, what they do is they tell the border patrol agents, no, you must get vaccinated. Meanwhile, we're going to let illegal aliens come in, not test them, no mandate. This is why the border patrol agents are pushing back, because this is nonsensical. And they know that this is about politics rather than substance. So I think just underscored under all of this is we have to we have to remember, Okay, yes, for those that want to have the vaccine, excellent, 100 percent. That's great. You do what you need to do. We need to be defending the rights of people who are not comfortable with it. Congress did not grant OSHA any authority to establish a vaccine mandate. OSHA is acting outside of its perimeters here. And honestly, the vaccine mandate, it's its so representative of this, uh, this really dictatorial nature that I think we're seeing uh, increasingly within our government at moments. Biden's the truth authoritarian. Yeah, isn't Shock it funny? All. Maybe we should hashtag resist. <laughs> I say I was part of a group text during the Trump administration. We called ourselves the MAGA Amigos. And then literally within, I think, 30 seconds of the election being called for Biden a week later, someone changed it to hashtag the resistance. <laughs> and so now we send all of our Let's Go Brandon memes and content to the resistance. So I'm on board. That's hashtag right. resist. We're the true resistance. We're the actual. Hashtag the, resist. The funny thing is, like, the way that the left acted as if the Trump administration was this, like, 
dystopian. Like they dressed up like The Handmaid's Tale and they acted like The Handmaid's Tale, like the Handmaid's Tale is coming any second now. Our rights nope. are going to get stripped away. Meanwhile, the Trump administration actually increased federalism, returned power to the states, yeah. disempowered the federal government. And now you see the Biden administration once again doing what the Obama administration did for eight years, weaponizing yep. the federal government against the American people. And everyone's just like, nah, this is cool because he, he means well. His heart's in the right place. Yeah. Like we have more kids in cages today under the Biden administration administration than we ever had under the Trump administration. But since his heart's in the right place and since he's calling his policies humane. Who cares the consequences? Right. Exactly. It's insane. Got to look at the actions, not just the words. Stay tuned because up next, we dive into an issue we all need to care about, and that is paid family leave. We will tell you why it matters in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you all about a super fun way you can stay connected with problematic women throughout the week. Problematic Women is on Instagram. You can catch highlights of the show, fun reels, inspiring social graphics, and stay informed on what we are covering on the show all by following the Problematic Women Instagram. I have loved connecting with so many of you. Thanks for all of your messages and your comments. It is such a blast to hear from our listeners. So if you Want to be informed and stay up with what we're doing? Just search for Problematic Women on Instagram and look for that bright, hot pink logo. So as a new mom, I can personally attest to the importance of paid family leave. I just went on maternity leave. I have a sweet little five-month-old. It's been so much fun. But here's the thing. I think we, when we talk about this, Republicans and Democrats, we know that we both agree that family leave is important. I wish that conservatives were as good as the left is at naming things and controlling the language and the way that we talk about things. And we shouldn't let the left get away with being deceptive on this issue. They make paid family leave sound like this, this, you know, this thing in the ether that just needs to exist. And of course, everyone supports it. But the way that they're talking about it and the way that they, they say that the U.S. doesn't have it, we do have it. I just took 12 weeks of it. My husband just took four weeks of it. We have paid family leave. We don't have government mandated family leave, which is something that we if you look at the actual um, legislation that they have crafted, you would actually be a Against So Republicans and Democrats, again, we agree that family leave is important. We just disagree on whether the federal government or private companies should be responsible for providing it. So it's been an issue for a long time. The reason it's come up right now is because Congress is weighing in on whether or not to include paid parental leave in Biden's giant social spending bill. And if you actually look at the provisions of this bill and the reason that it is so harmful and problematic is that it would take away flexibility from women mm-hmm. and families. And that is what women actually Want And when you look at companies, they're providing more maternity leave and longer maternity leave than ever before. And so the market is working as companies want to retain and, and, you know, keep their employees happy or they want to attract top talent. They're offering more and better paid family leave policies to their employees. So we don't need government mandates for this. If you're a woman and you want to seek out a company that aligns with your values and supports you as a parent – you have the rights to do that. I specifically did that, and I'm really happy with the choices that I've made. And I don't think that having the government take those choices away, it's actually going to make things so much worse. We've already seen that it's limiting childcare options for women. It's, it's going to have a lot of trickle-down effects as well. 
I think what's so sad is what you hit at earlier. The left is so good at manipulating language to then force you into this false dichotomy of, well, if you don't support this package, then you don't support paid family leave and you're evil and you're awful. That's not the reality of the situation. When you start to explain to people what these one-size-fits-all kind of programs are actually going to do in terms of pulling away choice, pulling away flexibility, then you start to get people on your side. Mm-hmm. And especially after you know the pandemic, we're seeing companies having to make more flexible plans for employees. It, it, it just it blows my mind the level to with which we, the left says, OK, let's take this as a, a, a mandate to then go force these programs onto people that are one going to result in less opportunities, higher taxes, fewer jobs, less flexibility for women. I don't understand it. Yeah. yeah. I love how Rachel Gresler, she is a Heritage Foundation research fellow. I love how she put it in a recent CNBC article. She was quoted saying, whereas government paid family leave programs have weeks long waiting periods, they have rigid rules, they give only partial paychecks, those employer provided programs can respond at the drop of a dime and they often provide full paychecks, and more flexible leave policies. So, I mean, like we all said, we, we can all get behind this. It's not controversial. Yes, moms and dads, they need time with their babies. That's so mm-hmm. important. Um, Meghan Markle, the Duchess yeah. of Sussex, is weighing in on this as well. Let's listen to her. She recently was on uh, the New York Times deal book. Let's see what she had to say. I think this is one of those issues that is not red or blue. We can all agree that people need support certainly when they've just had a child. And we have a five-month-old baby, so it's a really um, sensitive one for us. We have the luxury of being able to have had that time, not just for moms, right, but for fathers as well, to be with our newborn. And I think if this entire country, if, you know, if we valued American families in that way, as we should, it sets us up for economic growth and success, but it also just really allows people to have that very sacred time right. as a family. So again, an, an issue that we can agree on, the difference just comes in the how. So, you know, Lindsay, I know this this is an issue you are so passionate about. It's personal to you as a new mom. But for those that would say, you know, uh, the, the government has to provide it because employers won't if, if the government does it. And, you know, we'll, we'll hear the stories of, of those that, you know, work jobs where it's not being provided. What do we do about them? What's what's your response to that? Oh, that's such a great question. And yes, we do want to empower women and make sure that families are supported in our society. And there are options for them. I do think that that's kind of the, the, the dichotomy that Gloria was talking about that the left kind of paints and that Meghan Markle kind of pushes. It is kind of interesting to see someone who's like, a wealthy elite talking about like, oh, here's what the unwashed masses need, even though it wouldn't be her paying for these policies. It would be us paying for these policies. And so the middle class and the lower class are actually the people who suffer the costs of these programs. And so nothing is free. When the government makes promises about, oh, we're going to give you something, it actually means that they're going to be taking away Hmm. more power, more control, more flexibility, but also more money in the form of tax dollars. And so that's the problem that we have with these programs. And, and with leave. And again, the, the, the point about, you know, yes, parents need time with their children. Um, we should be able to decide how much time we need with our children. And if it's three months, if it's four weeks, whatever works for, for everyone's families, that's what we need to be able to decide. And as you just mentioned, and I think Gresler made this point, you do actually see that if, if the government was to mandate a lot of these leave 
packages or these leave programs, it would actually lower what com- what some companies are offering because there are some companies that are offering such generous packages that if they then were like, oh, this is just what the government's mandating, I'll just do that. And it's going to be less time and less flexibility for women. Getting back to what you were talking about in terms of whenever the federal government provides something, it's also going to be taking something away. These federal mandates, federal paid leave programs often actually disproportionately harm low-income folks. It's it, it's really wealthy people that are going to be benefiting from them the most. So not only are you slapping taxes, higher costs, less opportunities, less flexibility, it's not the folks who need these programs the most are the ones that are going to be benefiting from them. Yeah. I do think one one of the positives of the fact that everyone is talking about this right now is uh, I think there's a little bit of this seeing value for the family mm-hmm. yes. in a way that we haven't seen before. And mm. we're seeing it on the left and the right. And I'm just celebrating this. Yes, like, hallelujah. yes let's get behind the family. Let's uh, really be focused on the fact that it is so important for a kid to to have time with their mom and their dad, the New York Times, they just published a piece talking about the actual uh, really positive effects for families where both mom and dad have an opportunity to take family leave. Uh, the piece cited this study that out of uh, 6,000 couples that were tracked over a course of many, many years, dads who took one or more weeks of paternity leave, those couples were 26% more likely to stay married than couples where the father took no leave. I think that's mm. awesome. And it shows that's such a powerful time when it, like mm-hmm. a newborn baby comes into the world to have time for, for mom and dad to be together with that little oh, one. Oh, I needed my husband so <laughs> much. Like, not even, not, no exaggeration. So the fact that we're talking about this is, it is really timely. I think a lot of the reason that the New York Times is covering this and people, they are kind of protecting the Biden administration. And of course, they're pushing this policy through Congress. But they're also protecting Pete Buttigieg. I don't know if we wanted to talk about that or if it's two-third rail because... Go for it, Lindsay. Here's yes. the thing. Third rail infrastructure. I liked the pun. I'm just going to grab it. Yes. Grabbing grabbing that that transportation, yes, is paid family leave infrastructure. No. So Pete Pete Buttigieg, here's the thing. Go ahead. Take, you know, take paternity leave, whatever. And and give us a a background on what happened there for those that don't know. Okay. Good point. So Pete Buttigieg is the transportation secretary for the Biden administration. And he came under fire recently because there is a massive supply chain crisis raging out of control right now. And no one noticed that he was just not at his job for three months while this while this crisis was unfolding and no one was acting in his role. That was the problem that people had with it. It wasn't that he was taking maternity leave, paternity leave. It was that he was not, there was nobody acting in his role to solve this crisis at a time when we actually needed him to be in that role doing something about this crisis. Um, now that he's back, he's not actually doing any, you know, it's not actually helping anyway. But He might be doing more harm than good. I know, it's almost like, could you go away again? But no, <laughs> The the problem, though, is I think that they were able to use that as a distraction because then all the press conferences with him and all the Sunday morning shows that he did, the question wasn't, holding him accountable for the supply the, the supply chain crisis and people weren't like hey let's ask questions about the supply chain crisis they were like hey why are conservatives so mean and homophobic and attacking you about you know and why do they hate families and and paid you know paid paternity leave because the conser- aren't conservatives supposed to be pro family and yet they're anti Pete Buttigieg taking paternity leave and that wasn't it that wasn't why we were criticizing him the reason that we were criticizing him was because there was nobody in that role and it's an important role and someone needed to be in it when I 
I took maternity leave from the Heritage Foundation, and I'm just the social media manager. We hired a temp. Our team even made sure that that base was covered, and I'm just, you know, we're just a think tank. We needed someone to cover those we bases. We did. Lindsay plays a very important role Thank here, y'all. Not to, not to diminish, but I'm just saying, like, it's, it's pretty ironic that, like, he had a very important role and then didn't have anybody in place for that. And so when people were criticizing him for that, they kind of punted and made it about parental leave and that we were criticizing him for that. That wasn't what happened. Again, the left just always manipulates the language or the way that we're having this conversation. And so people, and then of course some conservatives fell for it. I saw a lot of conservative guys that were tweeting like, oh, I would never take paternity leave and that's for sissies or something. And I was like, grow up, pump the brakes. I was so happy that my husband was there for me. I needed him again, like physically just could not have done it without him. And just like, I really, and also just like, There's something that happens when you're, like, alone with your baby and your husband where it's, like, you need that bonding time. But also it's, like, you feel safe. Your Mm -hmm. husband is, like, your protector. And I felt safe in my home knowing my husband was there. Anytime he left the house to even run errands, I was, like, when are you coming home? When are you going to be back? Like, I just needed him there. And so I do think that there is a time and a place. And, again, every family is different. Decide how much or how little time you need. I love that this is coming shortly after Senator Hawley gave the speech on the importance of manhood a mm. few weeks ago. Mm. I think we see in this country just an epidemic of fatherlessness, of yeah. mm-hmm. um, masculinity being attacked. Mm-hmm. And Well, even conservatives, obviously some conservative men have kind of warped and malformed what masculinity really means and mm-hmm. what, what, what it means to be manly. And caring for your family, protecting yep. your family, and providing for your family, those are manly things. There's nothing sissy about mm-hmm. that. I think that any issue that you look at, any kind of big overarching social issue, whether it's uh, homelessness, uh, drug addictions, um, you know, high high incarceration rates, all of those things you track back. And so often you find issues started in broken homes. We need mm. dads. We need mm-hmm. strong dads. If we want a strong community, if we want a healthy, thriving America, we need strong families. We need dads. We need moms. So I'm super excited to see people are talking about this. It's getting it's getting headlines, albeit uh, it, it's a little bit of, of a wonky conversation because people are, are pushing their own policy agenda with the infrastructure bill and trillions of dollars are being thrown around like it's candy. But at the same time, it's like, OK, at least we're having a really important conversation about the value of family. All right. Well, we would be remiss today if we didn't talk about Veterans Day. We love our veterans here at the Heritage Foundation at the Daily Signal. It is such really an honor and a privilege to be able to recognize them, to thank them for their service, for all of our veterans listening. Truly thank you for for what you have done. We know that there are so many sacrifices that go completely unseen by by those around you and in your community. So thank you. We value you and we value the, the sacrifice that your entire family has made. I was I was curious though about about the history of Veterans Day. So I took a little time to look it up. It actually takes place every November 11th, so that that date never changes. And the reason why we honor veterans on November 11th every year is because that is the day that the fighting came to an end in World War One on November 11th, 1918. Allied nations and Germany came to an armistice, and that's an agreement to end the fighting. And then a year later, President Wilson proclaimed November 11th as the first celebration of Armistice Day. 
And then in 1938, Armistice Day was officially became uh, a holiday. But after World War II, the word armistice was replaced with Veterans Day in honor of not only those that had served in World War I, but all of our veterans, whether they have served, of course, now in, in so many different wars and fights over over the over the years uh, in representing our nation and representing America. So thank you to all of our veterans for your service. And I actually think that now is uh, the perfect time to go ahead and crown our Promenic Woman of the Week. So we are going to go right into that this week. We are so excited that the crown goes to our female veterans. I have a couple of great stories to tell. Speaking of um, the the history of Veterans Day, something that I always do and my family's always done. This is a great tradition if you guys want to pick it up as well. Tell the stories, seek out stories of veterans. But specifically for this podcast this year, I spoke with my husband and I was like, we need some some great stories about women who have sacrificed. And so he sent me some great stories I'd never heard before. I just think it's a great practice on these historical days. I mean, I, I'm a Catholic, so I follow a liturgical calendar. But I really think that as Americans, we should follow kind of a liturgical calendar of American civil society and American history. And just remember, I think – you know, on Veterans Day, on Memorial Day, like recognizing these times, but using that as an opportunity to really research and really read and reflect on what these days are really all about, and especially for the sacrifices that have been made. Um, So I've got two great stories. I'll try to keep them brief, but they're just really incredible stories of, of, you know, sacrifices by by our women service members. Amazing. Take it away, Lindsay. Yeah. So Specialist Monica Brown, she was 19 years old in 2008 when this happened. She's a native of Lake Jackson, Texas. She was presented with the Silver Star by Vice President Dick Cheney during a ceremony at Bagram Airfield. It was dusk, April 25th, 2007, when Brown, a medic from the 782nd Brigade Support Battalion, 4th Brigade Combat Team, and 82nd Airborne Division, was on a routine security patrol in an isolated area when her convoy was attacked by insurgents. She said, we'd been out on the mission for a couple of days. She at the time was attached to the brigade's 4th Squadron, 73rd Cavalry Regiment's Troop C. They had just returned into a wadi, which is an empty riverbed, when our gunner yelled at us that the vehicle behind us had hit an IED, which is an improvised explosive device. They all looked out from their windows to see just in time that the struck vehicle's tires were flying through the field next to them. Brown had just opened her door to see what was going on when the attack began. She saw the smoke from the vehicle when suddenly we started taking small arms fire from all around us. Our gunner started firing back, and my platoon sergeant yelled, Doc, let's go. Brown and her platoon sergeant, Staff Sergeant Jose Santos, exited their vehicle, and while under fire, they ran a few hundred meters to the site of the downed Humvee. Everyone was already out of the burning vehicle, she said, but even before I got there, I could tell that two of them were severely injured. In fact, all five of the passengers who had stumbled out were burned and cut. Two soldiers, Specialist Stanton Smith and Specialist Larry Spray, suffered life threatening injuries. And with help from two less injured vehicle crewmen, they were able to move the immobile soldiers to a relatively safe distance from the burning Humvee. But there was pretty heavy incoming fire at that point. Rounds were literally missing her by inches, said Badani, who provided suppressive fire as Brown aided the casualties while injured. We needed to get away from there. Attempting to provide proper medical care under the heavy fire became impossible, especially when the attackers stepped up the efforts to kill the soldiers. Another vehicle had just maneuvered to our position to shield us from the rounds now 
exploding in the fire from the Humvee behind us, Brown said. Somewhere in the mix, we started taking mortar rounds, and it became a huge commotion. But all I could let myself think about were my patients. With the other vehicles spread out in front of the crescent formation, Brown and her casualties were stuck with nowhere to go. Suddenly, Santos arrived with one of the unit's vehicles, backed it up into their position, and Brown began loading the wounded soldiers inside. They took off to a more secure location several hundred meters away where they were able to call in a medical evacuation mission. She then directed other combat life-saving qualified soldiers to help by holding intravenous bags and assisting her in prepping the casualties for evacuation. After what seemed like an eternity, the attackers finally began retreating and Brown was able to perform a more thorough aid procedure before the medevac helicopter even arrived to transport the casualties to safety. Two hours after the attack, the everything was over, but in the darkness, Brown recalled standing in a field, knee-deep in grass, her only source of light coming from her red headlight, trying to piece together the events that had just taken place. Looking back, it was just a blur of noise and movement, she said. What just happened? Did I do everything right? It was hard to think about. Before joining the Army at the age of 17, the bright-eyed young woman said she never pictured herself being in a situation like this. Originally just wanting to be an x-ray technician, she changed her mind when she realized that by becoming a medic, she'd be in the best place to help people. Mm. At first, I didn't think I could do it, she said. I was actually afraid of blood. When I saw my first airway opening operation, I threw up. But she quickly adjusted to her job and received additional training both before and during her deployment to Afghanistan. So this woman is absolutely incredible, but something that needs to be noted, she's only the second woman to ever receive the Silver Star. It's a huge honor. I I have have a couple friends who have Silver Stars, and they also did amazing things. Um, But it is really incredible to to hear the story of a woman who really served and just hearing the way that she talks about service Mm -hmm. gives you chills. And I think to actually kind of put yourself in that position, Lindsay, as you were sharing, just like, wow, what these people actually go through it's it's incredible that anyone mm. can can cope and mm-hmm. and do their job and, and pull it together because yeah I mean like like she said just like looking back it was like whoa yeah. what even happened just going through the motions and I think that's a testament to the training that absolutely we give our our military folks and and to her own courage to be able to step up and uh, you know just just do the job that needed to be done so yeah when when under fire and in that kind of you know fight or flight situation mm-hmm. that just so speaks to um, what our forces are doing in terms of preparing our folks and mm-hmm. the, the courage under fire and under pressure. It's incredible. incredible. Oh, sorry. I know. I got a lot of chills. But just thinking about the sacrifices that the, that our, that our servicemen made, and I think it just needs to be said in the wake of the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan mm-hmm. and, the, and the malfeasance there and the way that it happened, there are a lot of service members and veterans who are really disillusioned this Veteran Day, and they are struggling. A lot of them are depressed. A lot of my friends have been reaching out just talking about this hopelessness of, like, I'm going to cry. Like, what was it all for? We, I mean, not just their injuries. I'm talking about, you know, they, they not only were they injured, but hearing her talk about being in a field and just kind of having that what just happened moment. I have so many friends who, you know, went through that and, and you know, kind of had to, to regroup afterwards. They had traumatic brain injuries. They lost limbs. Um, they lost friends. And to to have their country, you know, it, it feels like a betrayal. And I think that, that it just makes it more important for us now more than ever to make sure that this Veterans Day, we really say thank you um, to our service members, that we that we take the time to reach out. It means so much to reach out to the people that we know um, who have served and just make sure that they're okay, that they're that they're that they know that we honor their sacrifice, even if this administration doesn't. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Amen. absolutely. I think that is a perfect place to leave it. Lindsay, thank you. Gloria, thank you for being here. This has been 
so fun for all of our listeners. We're going to leave it there for this week. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share and make sure that you're following us on Instagram. Like Virginia said, she's doing such a great job on the content. It's such a fun account to follow. So make sure that you're following our updates over there. And again, make sure that you review us. Or I'm sorry, that was supposed to be your part. <laughs> Conservative. Okay. I will say. Take it away, Lindsay. Here's the thing. It's true. So many women say like, oh, we need more conservative women podcasters. And we really, really do. But conservatives need our support in the podcasting world. We really Really appreciate your support. So go and give Virginia and Lauren and all of us here at Problematic Woman a five-star review on Spotify, Castbox, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening to this, wherever you get your podcast, it really makes a huge difference if you leave a review. And don't just do the five-star rating. I usually do that. Write a <laughs> review. It makes a huge difference in helping people find us and it just it really helps conservatives all around. And we hope that you all have a great week. Again, have a wonderful Veterans Day to all of our veterans. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.